0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, I'm going to start once again by encouraging you to support races. Races is a 501c3 nonprofit agency that promotes justice by providing free and low cost legal services to underserved immigrant kids and families and refugees. This organization is helping the kids who are currently living in detention centers, scared out of their wits, away from their moms and dads. This is an atrocity. It is a national tragedy. It is a crime. And this organization is doing the good work of trying to get these kids back to their parents. If you want to support them, go to racismtexas.org. That's R A I C E S Texas.org. R A I C E S Texas.org. Thanks. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I
1: have a friend in common.
0: Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done.
1: I think it's really beautiful. Mm-hmm. Gee, I stated what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy.
0: Just one hello. person. In Hi, just hello one time. everybody. How's <laughs> it going? I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. This is The Other People Show. It's The Other People Podcast. Thank you for listening. I have Adrian Selt on the program today. She has a novel out. It is called Invitation to a Bonfire. It is getting rave reviews. It's available now from Bloomsbury. She was uh, over here not too long ago. We had a great conversation that's coming up uh, just in a minute. I am actually out of town this week. As you are listening to this, as this uh, episode goes live, I am uh, all the way across the country uh, for some work stuff. So I'm recording this ahead of time. I'm, like, trying to race to get it done before I leave. It's that kind of thing. So, I didn't want to leave you without an episode. I wanted to get Adrian's uh, episode up, and I think we should just get right to it. This here is my conversation with Adrian Selt. Her novel, is it her debut novel? I should know this. See, I'm discombobulated. It's a tense psychological thriller and a deft character study. Hang on a second. Let me go online and just make sure... Actually, no. What am I talking about? It's not her debut. Her debut was called The Daughters. Her new novel is called Invitation to a Bonfire. This, ladies and gentlemen, is Adrian Selt.
1: And I wrote it faster, like in a blur of...
0: How fast?
1: The first draft, four months. Okay, that's pretty fast. Yeah, and then I revised it for like a year. But I, I wrote the first draft right before the 2016 election... And then I revised it after the 2016 election,
0: so... Because I was going to say, there's, like, Russian concerns in your book, and was this something that you... Like, were you early to the Trump-Russia story, and was this informing the writing of the book, or did you get that after you'd done this, like, really fast first draft, and then you were like, well... I've got to somehow, this changes the calculus a little bit.
1: No, I'm just a, a, I'm just a Russophile. I studied Russian in college. I lived in St. Petersburg. And so this book came naturally to me as a story that I was interested in about people I was interested in. And then after the election happened, I was suddenly shocked by how relevant it was. And that gave me the opportunity to go back and really think hard about amping up some of the ideas about, uh, national identity and how much you want to privilege your fidelity to a nation um, and and to a national set of ideals.
0: It's always made no sense to me. I mean, to a certain extent, yes, I'm American, but I'm really, I'm i I'm on planet earth. I see things more cosmically than I do in terms of nationalism. I feel like what's the patriotism is the last refuge of the scandal, right?
1: (laughs) Yeah, totally.
0: (laughs) Freaks me out when everybody gets all like amped up about their team.
1: The only time I have ever felt amped up about my "Quote unquote team." Um, it was, I'm actually very Polish in my heritage, and i my first book was set in well, not set in Poland mostly, but partially. Um, and I visited Poland and visited some relatives of mine. And my grandfather was a war hero. He was a, a paratrooper during World War II uh, for the Polish government in exile, and his his paratrooping group was called "Cicho Czmy," which is the Dark and the Silent. And damn, yeah, right it's hard to live up to
0: grandpa grandpa was a badass (laughs) he was
1: a badass my grandma was a badass Selt
0: is a polish name
1: no it's an acronym um so the c is comes from my grandfather's actual name which was chuk which i just butchered bless you sorry yes that's how i said it as a child i would say chuk (laughs) (laughs) um but he it so the c comes from chuk and the e comes from my grandmother's name eva and the L comes from her maiden name, Lovell. And then the T is Tadeusz, which is my grandfather's name. So it's
0: a pseudonym. It's
1: a, yeah, because he... So after he, he did two... He was the only Polish paratrooper to do two drops into occupied Warsaw and survive. Um, and he helped organize the Warsaw Uprising. Total badass. Damn. Damn. I know. Is he Jewish? No. No. Uh, we think we, now that my maternal grandmother is dead, we think that she like reading between the lines and some notes that we think we have Jewish blood on that side, but my, my dad's side is all just uh shicks a pole.
0: So <laughs> your, your grandfather was the only guy to drop in a uh, using a parachute into occupied Warsaw.
1: The only person to do it twice and live
0: and live. Yeah.
1: And he escaped one of the times he escaped it it's this crazy story. He was with a, a Hungarian priest named Bela Varga, and he had to pretend to be a Hungarian priest as well in order to get past the Nazis on the trains, but he doesn't speak or didn't speak Hungarian, and so he had to pretend to be mute, like that he'd lost his voice or something
0: dude i've had i was I've talked on this show I've read like an excerpt of a book that I'm working on where there uh, there's a mute like the character the main character is in the grocery store and there's a mute guy in front of him in line who is like kind of gesturing to the cashier and in my story the main character who's basically me is thinking to himself like wouldn't it be funny if like when it comes my turn to check out if i pretend to be mute too (laughs) just to fuck with the cashier (laughs) so i can relate to your grandfather having to pretend to be mute that's actually crossed my mind before oddly enough
1: that's wild yeah (laughs) Well, it worked for him. And uh, the point of that story was that afterwards he was writing his memoirs and he lived in, he and my grandmother moved to Munich after the war because the Soviets took over Poland and they didn't want to live there. And they worked for Radio Free Europe. And he, so he wrote his memoirs under a pseudonym, which my dad and my uncle then adopted when they came to the U.S. Which is? CELT.
0: Okay. Yeah. So that's where it comes from. This isn't something you picked up, like you decided Mm -hmm. on as like a writer or something. Nope. Man, I, your grandparents are badasses. Oh what a God. life!
1: And my my so my mom's mom, she was Polish, and she lived grew she grew up a lot of her young life. She in... was a black
0: belt in taekwondo. And...
1: <laughs> no, it's so much weirder. <laughs> she lived in a Russian town in China. Okay, and her fiance was Jewish, and she was Catholic. So her, or well, not I guess they weren't really fiancés because they didn't want they knew they couldn't get married because their families wouldn't approve. And they were going to live in sin together. And then he went on a family vacation to, I think, Indonesia. And he died in a tsunami.
0: In Indonesia.
1: In Indonesia. And his family didn't tell her. She had to find out through a mutual friend.
0: So wait, this was your maternal grandmother's...
1: Like, lover.
0: <laughs> but not, not your grandfather. No, like, They my didn't grand, have a kid.
1: They did not have a kid. But my she had actual... a lover early
0: in her life who went to Indonesia and died in a tsunami. Yes,
1: Damn. And then she got married to a Russian man and moved to America and was a librarian.
0: Fate can be strange. It can. I mean, that's not, you know what I'm saying? Like who goes, like, I just had a friend, um, you know, one of our dear friends lost a, some cousins in a plane crash, like a small, like Piper plane crash just this week. And they were like, they, you know, like high school sweethearts, they were married forever. I was reading an article on the, you know, on the internet Just great life. Made a ton of money. Like had this kind of dream life. Mm -hmm. Died in a plane crash. That sucks. Yeah. But
1: one of the things I think about a lot is whether chance is real or whether we're all deterministically fated to do everything we do. And if everything is completely random, I don't remember where I read this, where I came across this idea. It's that it's you, people think that it would then be more likely for you to just have normal things happen, but actually the most random possible thing happening um, is more likely in a world where everything is absolutely arbitrary because if all things being equal, you may as well get hit by a comet.
0: Um, do, you, do you think, do you believe in cause and effect?
1: I do. I actually am more, much more of a determinist when you get down to it.
0: Is that people who believe in free will?
1: It's people who believe that it's, it's like a really extreme version of the butterfly effect, just like that every... Infinite, infinite
0: causality. Infinite
1: causality, yeah. yeah. Although I have read now that a lot of scientists, like physicists, quantum physicists now believe that maybe cause maybe determinism isn't real. It was a big scientific theory for a long time, that like free will doesn't technically exist because everything is determined. But now, because on a quantum level, um, there's... Just there's quantum random effects, God, that is so not the scientific term for it, and some scientists is screaming right now. Um, they don't
0: listen to my show good, right,
1: good, <laughs> <laughs> but there the quantum elements act randomly, sometimes strangely, unpredictably, so they can give you a, an average of the likelihood of what's going to happen, but they can't know for sure. And so that makes some scientists say, like, I guess determinism isn't perfect either, because maybe there's some wiggle room. And within that wiggle room, we maybe have the freedom to make choices.
0: Uh, yeah, that makes some sense to me. Yeah. It's sort of like half and half. I feel like most of the time, or I feel like uh, what interbeing or interrelatedness is a law of the universe. mm mm-hmm. I was like this morning on Twitter, someone was saying like, socialism doesn't work. Like just to give an example, someone, <laughs> someone was like ranting about how socialism never works, uh-huh. but unregulated capitalism doesn't work either. And I'm like, doesn't it seem obvious that like the right system is some combination wouldn't it be a blend? Isn't that the way of the, of the, of the way of things in the universe?
1: Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty paradise.
0: socialist. <laughs> I am too, but I like, I, but I also believe that there can be, you know, there can be a place for like a free market and sure. people coming up with ideas and wanting to start a business. Like, I don't have a problem with that, but I it... also don't think there's any way
1: around it. Like that's just how we set, buy and sell things. Yeah. Like that's, that's how we exchange stuff but it doesn't mean that there can't be some sort of benevolent government system in place to also
0: support those who don't thrive thrive yeah exactly i agree and like you know you need good public schools and you need like strong public services
1: you need the goddamn post office
0: you need the library department
1: ah libraries are palaces of the people (laughs)
0: right (laughs) so passionate Uh, i love them a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So, okay, so where are you from?
1: I'm from Seattle.
0: But now you live in Tucson.
1: Yeah, I, I grew up in Seattle and I never moved like for my entire young life until 18. I, my dad, when my parents divorced, we had this house... It's not even a cul-de-sac. So if you went up a driveway, there would be my childhood home. And then there would be a second house that was always occupied by crazy people. And then there was a third house behind it that was just the end of that road. And that we bought that house when I was eight or 10 and rented it out for a long time. And then when my parents divorced, my dad moved there. So I never even moved out of this driveway.
0: <laughs> wow. And your parents live in close quarters, really?
1: Yeah. Until... they got
0: along like amicably
1: uh, kind of now they do
0: <laughs> right. It takes a while. Yeah. You got to work out the kinks. Absolutely. But they were doing, they were trying in good faith.
1: They were, and they made it really easy for us. Like if I was 15 and having a problem with my mom and I needed ice cream and she didn't have any, I could just walk next door in my pajamas and get
0: ice cream. I think that's great when, when, cause you know, relationships don't always work out. It's one of the hard realities of human life, but especially when there are kids involved, It's like, you got to make sure you're making decisions in their best interest primary. Totally. Like that, that, that's the first thing. Yeah. Sometimes it doesn't work like that.
1: Yeah. They did a good job.
0: Good for them. So do you have any siblings? I have
1: three siblings. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I have an older sister who now has two kids of her own and I have a younger brother who is a rock musician and I have a younger sister who just had a kid like six months ago who I have not met yet, but I'm going to meet her in Seattle for my reading on the 19th
0: are they all up in seattle
1: they're all up in seattle you're the
0: only one who flew
1: well my older sister went to school went to college in um in scotland actually so she lived away from home for a long time and she and her husband lived in london for a long time that's actually where both my niece and my nephew were born but they came back to seattle because they liked the pace of life there and although now the pace of life there is crazy because amazon rules everything
0: i was gonna say like what's the pace of life in seattle
1: Um, For them, it's fine. My brother-in-law works at the Gates Foundation and my sister-in-law, my sister, my sister sister, who was born from the same mother, (laughs) she um, is, she works in the nonprofit world um, and they,
0: they do good works.
1: They they do good works and they're fairly compensated for it. More so my brother-in-law, I think (laughs) because the Gates Foundation is great. Yeah. But they bought a house in Ballard, which is this nice sort of hipster neighborhood in Seattle that when I was growing up, the the story around Ballard was always that it wanted to secede from the rest of Seattle because it had been an independent city. Uh, I don't know if they still do that. But anyway, they bought a house just before it became Really prohibitively expensive, and now whenever I think about moving back, I think just I don't I don't know. My house in Tucson costs two hundred and seventy five thousand dollars. Damn, <laughs> I don't know if I can stomach living anywhere else. Yeah,
0: because you'd have to go, you know, get like a shoebox for the same price, right? If at all, if if, if yeah.
1: it, probably not, <laughs> probably a shoebox for a much higher price.
0: Right, that's so depressing. Yeah. So okay, so you're you're born and raised in Seattle. It's a beautiful town, though. I love it there. It's a nice place to be raised. Yeah. It seems it is. like Pacific Northwest seems wholesome to me.
1: It it is wholesome. And I it, it's wholesome and spooky, which is a great combination. It's very Twin Peaksian. Yeah. Um and I always thought I would move back. So I still think maybe someday we will. Uh, but I really wanted to get out as a teenager, just in the, that teenage way, not because I had a problem with Seattle, but actually specifically because I thought if I left as a college student, I would have the emotional freedom to come back,
0: which didn't work out yet, as it turns out. But once again, fate, sometimes things take a twist. You don't know. Yeah. I can't believe I live here. Right. I, I never thought I would.
1: This is nice, though.
0: Yeah. It's not so, <laughs> Los Angeles isn't so bad.
1: Yeah. I had I didn't like L.A. the first couple of times I came here, and then I just suddenly it clicked for me. Now I really like it.
0: Yeah, it takes a it's a hard place to access as a visitor. I feel like it's mm-hmm. not necessarily super friendly to visitors.
1: No, I always my best friend lives here though, so I always just have her ferrying me around.
0: And you're close. I mean, Tucson's yeah. a short flight. Yeah, you know. It,
1: it, oh yeah, it's so much easier to get here than almost anywhere else from Tucson. You so, have to connect for almost every flight to a place you actually want to go <laughs>
0: it's a small airport
1: it is it's it's an international airport but it's it is tiny and you only have to get there a half an hour ahead of time it's which is really restless. what does it
0: mean it's an international airport you can't like are there actual they go to flight? mexico oh okay so you fly to mexico <laughs> yeah you're not like there's not like a flight on like air tokyo coming in or air japan probably not right
1: no you do for that you'd either come here i mean for japan you'd almost certainly come to lax or you go to phoenix which is a actual international airport right yeah
0: uh okay so what do you do in tucson
1: i aside from write books r- yeah write books and i am uh, my day job is writing for the google assistant and i don't know how much of it i can talk about because i it's a you know big tech company and i signed an nda but basically i write silly poems and fat animal facts and things cool. for, for the google assistant
0: for google mm-hmm. and google assistant is what like the hey google thing
1: yeah it's like the siri of google
0: uh-huh but so better. Here's what, here's, here's the thing. Like I, we have an, uh, an Alexa.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: We have a couple of Alexas. Mm-hmm. and I'm like, or echoes or whatever. Mm-hmm. I feel like they're just like surveillance devices. In oh, our they house. are for sure. They're tracking every fucking thing we say.
1: Well, there was just something that came out about, uh, what are they? The Alexa thing recording somebody's conversation because they accidentally said the hot word and then sending the recording of that just random conversation to somebody in their contact list.
0: Oh my God.
1: Yeah. I, I, I have a Google home because my job gave it to me so that I can QA stuff um, and make sure it's working, which my, my big number one success with that was my friend, Lisa Lucas, who runs the national book foundation oh, yeah, uh, told me that it was mispronouncing Sade. And I got them to fix it. (laughs) (laughs) Thank
0: God for that. Yeah. Uh, How do you know Lisa? Oh, just New York book world connections. Did you, did you ever live in New York? I never did. Oh, you never did. Yeah, no,
1: I went, so I went Seattle for 18 years. Then I went to college in Iowa at Grinnell college and I studied abroad in St. Petersburg and I lived in Portland for a little while because I have an uncle and like aunt and cousins who live in Portland. I love Portland. Um, and so and then after college i moved to northern california for a year to because i actually worked for google right out of college that's how i somehow slid into this job which is very cush for a a creative person um and then i moved to chicago because my then boyfriend now husband was going to northwestern and then i moved to phoenix for grad school for myself and what's grad school um arizona state university mfa program oh cool yeah It's funny because ASU to me was always like this sort of joke school.
0: (laughs) It's a party school. It's
1: a party school, but there are, it's actually just such a big school that there's a huge swath of people there. I taught comp like you do when you're in grad school. Um, and my students, some of them were burnouts, but some of them were amazing, like just amazing people. And I loved them. You get a mix. You do.
0: You know, I feel like, uh. I think you get a mix anywhere. Absolutely. Even at these elite programs, it's not like you, it's not like some homogenous group of elites.
1: Well, and also 18 to 21 year olds, even really smart 18 to 21 year olds are kind of dumb. Um, I just think back to being at Grinnell, which is it, you know, it's, not harvard in terms of it's being the harvard the, of the elite. absolutely <laughs> <laughs> we and probably several other midwestern institutions do call ourselves that sure but so you know it's, it's very smart people who are there who plan to do great things and good works and yet i still remember us getting drunk and you know puking in the common room somewhere in some dorm and then just not cleaning it up because we assumed you that the facilities
0: people yeah. are going to come clean it's it but those job. poor
1: facilities people That's
0: <laughs> a disgusting job oh
1: my god i feel so bad for them now yeah,
0: yeah yeah cleaning up like i think about like hotel maids that's always like the nightmare thought for me it's like what is that job like in you know especially certain places like like oh yeah down in like uh What's the name? It's South Padre Island, mm-hmm. where you're just cleaning up after idiot college kids.
1: No, <laughs> it's
0: a disgusting life. Yeah, uh, or not a disgusting life, but a disgusting job. Mm-hmm. Um, so, being a Russophile is that the right pronunciation? <laughs> yeah. How do you get into? How do you like? How did you become so fascinated? Just family history, or because of uh, literature, or both? Or I
1: would say both. It was also sort of 18 year old snap decision that i i had a friend who was a linguist who offered to teach me cyrillic when i was still in high school and i got that became just a small part of my identity that i wanted to amp up and then i i do have family history there and it's just a fun strange language to learn and a fun you speak strange... russian
0: <laughs> really <laughs> yeah. what does that even mean
1: I said, yes, I speak Russian a little bit. Oh, okay. It's good. I mean, it's one of those things where I was reasonably fluent when I lived there and it gets worse and worse every day.
0: I feel like Adrian might be a double agent. <laughs> For those of you listening, she's here to uh, infiltrate my podcast studio and plant listening devices.
1: This is the Americans crossover. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> She gave me a, uh, what do you call it, a Google Play? What do you call it, the thing? <laughs> the, kind of the, a, the
1: Google Home? <laughs> yeah, she
0: gave me a Google Home for some reason. It asked me to put it in my studio. I think she wants to listen in. For some reason. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Google. How do you say it? You know, anyway? Yeah,
1: yeah. that's it. It's either OK Google or Hey
0: Google. Hey Google.
1: Either of those work.
0: They work. Yeah. And it knows how to say Sade.
1: It knows how to say Sade now.
0: Because of you. Because of me. You changed the world. Ugh, I'm
1: so important.
0: <laughs> so you get into Russian, which I think is kind of a... That's kind of adorable that you're like, I need, I need to have, I need to have some sort of a quirk to my personality. <laughs> <Fuck you. laughs> I don't know. You're like 18. Yeah. I'm going to take this on. I'm going to learn Cyrillic. I'm going to start speaking Russian. Yeah. You know, I'm going to build this into my identity somehow. Like, and then you might, I mean, it, that's not enough to sustain interest. I think you mm-hmm. actually have to, from there, get interested. Oh, absolutely. So what was the pivot point? Like at what point did it start to get real?
1: Um, I guess just the fact that I enjoyed my Russian classes and, and literature. I think that is a, a deep dive point for me. I've always loved Russian literature. I like that there are all of these rivalries for people who are into Russian literature. Like, are you a Tolstoy person or a Dostoevsky person? And no matter which one you pick, when you're a college student, they have a lot of like late night con- philosophy conversation dorm room fodder. Um, yeah. And then once you start, it, which, one are we, are you,
0: which one are you? Which one? Which one do you like?
1: I have always been a Dostoevsky person in in terms of that particular dichotomy because Anna Karenina really pisses me off. Why? Because she's annoying. <laughs> have you tried, read that book? I
0: tried to read it once. I can't get through it.
1: Yeah, because she's really annoying and it's really long.
0: Yeah, these books are like they're they're huge doorstops.
1: Yeah, I'm given to understand that in the original, I have actually never read either a full Tolstoy or a full Dostoevsky novel in the original. Cause it's a little much. That's a little bit. I tried to read the master and Margarita in Russian and that was hard. Um, that's was maybe not a great choice. Bulgakov is so jokey and strange. Um, but yeah, supposedly Tolstoy is a better prose stylist, but I just, I was all my, so I was a Russian and a philosophy major in college and Dostoyevsky was more my jam in terms of the philosophy of the abject, I guess. Yeah.
0: And like, were you, what were you thinking as a college student? Were you thinking like, I'm going to be a writer or were you thinking I'm going to be some great philosopher? I'm going to work for the, you know, the state department and you know what I'm saying? Like, what were you?
1: Yeah, no, not the state department. I, I mostly thought I wanted to be a writer from a very young age and somebody at some point gave me the advice that if you want to write, you should not study writing as a college student. And I took that really to heart, which was great because I was interested in a lot of things and Grinnell is a wonderful school, but at, when I was there, it didn't have a it had a good writing program, but it didn't have a solid writing program with with a course of study. Um, you could have cre- made your own independent study as a writing major, but I didn't do that. And uh, it had a great philosophy program that was focused then on continental philosophy, so f- you know French feminism and Foucault and things like that, which was my jam. And I loved Russian. And once you get into the Russian major, you really kind of want to stick with it because it's. Not a hard it's it's a pretty easy way to get a second major and because a lot of the credits come from studying abroad, which I wanted to do anyway
0: um, so and you went no. to st petersburg yeah what you what university there
1: uh it was the getson institute
0: okay. which
1: it's you know it's really through a, a, a the american councils of a, a, the American Councils of the Association of Russian teachers, something like that
0: what uh, years were you there
1: uh, it was two thousand and five.
0: So was Putin, was it? Was...
1: Yes. It was just before, it was just before Putin went out for the first time and Medvedev came in. Um, oh,
0: right. There, there's that lull before the, exactly. the reascension.
1: Yeah. And it, it was interesting talking to Russian people there, like my host sister, I remember her saying that she just couldn't imagine. She's like, I don't want Putin to come back. Nobody wants Putin to come back, but I just can't imagine who else is going to take his place. And it turns out that he found a workaround.
0: <laughs> yeah. He would like he this guy was just kind of a placeholder.
1: Yeah, he was a crony.
0: And that's it. And he's still he's yeah. still involved in the government. Yeah. Like I, what is Med what, what is Medvedev, or how do you pronounce it?
1: Medvedev, yeah. I don't know what he's doing right now. I have not been I've been falling I so destroyed by American politics that I haven't put as much effort as usual into following Russian politics.
0: It just all seems connected at this point, I mean, oh, yeah, it's really weird,
1: yeah, Putin's such a weirdo
0: I don't think he's like he's like a genuinely like a homicidal maniac mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. he just has like journalists killed, has people poisoned, oh yeah, shot stuffed into the trunk of a car, he's he, like a mobster,
1: he's a classic like movie villain. Yeah. And he's so into
0: it. And I he's think into he's like really ju- into that. He's fact. into judo and being shirtless. Yeah, and... have
1: you you've must have seen those photos of like Putin shirtless riding a horse. Uh, I have a
0: whole uh, album full of them yeah. right here on my desk.
1: <laughs> Putin embracing a tiger.
0: Yeah, he's such a fucking like cartoon character. God. That's kind of how I feel about all of them. I mean, I feel like Paul Manafort, he uh like I remember when he came onto the scene in the campaign in uh, 2016 and it was like this guy's like it's like a batman villain it's like so mm-hmm. obviously like uh emanating evil you mm-hmm. can just tell
1: donald trump even like looks like the penguin
0: yeah <laughs> it's just it's a it's an exhausting state of affairs i've talked about it on this show a lot but you know as somebody who's a, a russian expert or not a russian expert but somebody who studied you i'll know, take it yeah <laughs> more so than most americans yeah sure do you have any sense that they're, like the Russian people, Are they? is there a desire? There's got to be a desire for them to get rid of this guy. Like p- sane people cannot enjoy living under an autocrat.
1: Well, it's the same as here. It's it's a huge country. The, the thing that I felt when I lived there that I still feel now is that Russian and America are just bizarro versions of the same thing. They're superpowers that are very invested in being seen as a superpower. But Russia has not been in vogue in the on the world stage for so long that I think there are a lot of people who have bad feelings about they just like feel slighted and and like in America they feel like they don't have what they need anymore and so if they think that Putin can give it to them then they will then they'll follow him but then there are a lot of very sane people just like you and me who think he's a monster and want him out of there you know
0: it's an interesting point Because I was going to, I was going to say Russia and America might be bizarre versions of one another, but we have a lot more money than they do. Oh yeah. Our economy is a lot bigger than theirs. Mm -hmm. But I think that there are people who grew up, especially those who grew up in Soviet times Mm -hmm. who had much more, even though they weren't living high on the hog, they had much more economic certainty. That's completely the case. And then after the fall of the Soviet union and the rise of the oligarchs and the autocracy, suddenly the economy, it's very like, you know, you're either a have and there are just a few of those or you're a have not. Mm-hmm. That's kind of how it is here.
1: Yeah. There, and, in St. Petersburg, there there were a lot of street vendors. And like, if you're walking to the subway or something, and I just remember there were all of these babushki like grandmothers and the, out there with their crochet or their berries that they're hawking on the street and i asked the program director about it at some point and she said you know these are people who were taken care of under the soviet union and now they have nothing it's really it's it's hard to know what's right <laughs>
0: it's and so you and you so you have socialist leanings politically
1: i mean how can you not
0: <laughs> i mean a lot of people don't i think, oh, a lot, I know. I think that's that, a silly that, thing to say <laughs> I, but i think that word in especially in america like there's been a concerted effort to Stigmatize it.
1: There ha- yeah. There and has. to
0: make it seem like any. Because, like, you know, like the Nazis, it was the National Socialists. Mm-hmm. So people use that to sort of like sully it. But, like, socialism just means that, like, the government plays a role in what? Like, certain sectors of the economy? Like, in, I, I in never social, know how to-
1: Social care. I think the government, uh, the part that I think people don't like is that the government has to redistribute wealth in order to provide social services and a social safety net. And it's fascinating to me how many people who don't identify with socialism or like really like demonize socialism think that it's a bad thing because, and it, like they're not rich people. They just believe in the pride of pulling themselves up by their bootstraps or whatever. And I guess I understand that, but I just, I, I, to me, it seems so obvious that we can provide Services that people need in order to be at least on a, a level of being strong enough, you know, healthy, having schooling, being able to have a child and not lose your house trying to pay for child care or healthcare or healthcare, Right. And and then from there, go out and build your business or do whatever
0: people it's. people would like. Like, the thing is, is that you hear people say, like, no socialism, but don't touch my Medicare. Mm hmm. And it's like, hey, that, that <laughs> is socialism. socialism. <laughs> <laughs> you like it quite a bit. I think in practice, people like it. In theory, people are scared of it because of the stigma, or because of some uncertainty, and because I think that the uh, you know there's this sort of uh, dogma that's been passed down that capitalism is this infallible system. It's the only thing that works. Mm-hmm. This is America. We're a free you know, and that's uh, pervasive. And the that campaign, you know, to make people believe that has been successful to a large yeah. extent. And so it's hard to move people off of that. But I think personally, like in my lifetime, I'm 42. I feel like for most of my life, the system that came into effect uh, in the New Deal, which was, the I think, the real socialist yeah. push in America that led to like the biggest boom in the history of the world, you know, the, the economic boom after World War II mm-hmm was enormous and it's not that that was the whole shooting match but you know that's what that it was, was. Part of it. but then <laughs> starting in 1980 there there was this the, the dismantling of it and now here we are anyway uh back to you you went to Arizona State for graduate school you were working on a book then
1: I was yeah so my first novel the daughters i started in grad school it was it started as a short story that i wrote that that was motivated in part by getting interested in my Polish heritage in a sort of deep way for the first time. But it was much too big for a short story as my workshop firmly told me. (laughs) And so then I started working on that novel over the course of that time. And when I graduated uh, my father in law had been diagnosed with uh clear cell sarcoma, which is a really horrible bone cancer and oh, God. It was, yeah it was it was rough it was, this is this is how my post graduation experience went, so we had been planning to move to Tucson then actually because my husband was teaching at a charter school in Phoenix, and he was going to transfer down to the Tucson one because his brother and his brother's now wife lived there um and and they still do, and we hang out. But because his dad was sick and he was burned out at his school, which was <laughs> mismanaged by Republican crazy people, he he decided to quit and we decided to just go live with my in-laws for a little while because it just seemed like my father-in-law didn't have that much time. Where do they live? Madison, Wisconsin was where they lived then. Um, but my father-in-law did die, unfortunately, a few months after we moved there. And now my mother-in-law lives in Utah because... Uh, My, my husband's family is Mormon, although he's not, and I'm not, and never was, but
0: (laughs) there's still time,
1: mm, I guess (laughs) that's true. (laughs) No, they're, but they're really wonderful. They're, they're like liberal Mormons, which I didn't know existed, but they're wonderful. And I love them so, 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 so much. Um, But so we lived with them. And while we were there, we got there and a month later, maybe. Uh, my brother-in-law showed up for a visit, you know, thinking that he's just there to visit his ailing father. And he had just come, I'm just I just want to contextualize this. He was like 34, maybe less at the time. And he had just come from a hiking trip. He was really into CrossFit. And while he was there, he kept making these jokes about, his health he was like i have this weird my skin's itchy and i I feel like i have falling arm syndrome like my arm always feels weird and then all of a sudden his his head got really puffy on the 4th of july and so his girlfriend now wife made him go to the doctor and he was diagnosed with hodgkin's lymphoma and he ended up being stranded in wisconsin getting treatment there for six months your husband no my brother-in-law oh your brother-in-law yeah so we all ended up like living there and working in the basement and it was like two cancer patients in the house and my husband got surgery while we were there and then a few months later i got surgery on my ear kind of surgeries um he had something called compartment syndrome which is when your muscle casings are too small for your muscles, which sounds like weightliftery, but it's not. Okay, <laughs> maybe weightlifters Did also get it. Is he
0: on steroids? <laughs> no, it was
1: more of a, like a repetitive stress thing. Actually, I think it's genetic because he had it on his legs too in college. Um, but I just remember my memory of the twenty twelve election. I was he had just had this surgery and he had these drainage tubes coming out of his arms that we had to squeeze the blood down into these little bulbs every few hours and he was just sat i I took him to vote and then he sacked out on the couch and i was watching the returns just squeezing blood down the tubes and (laughs) like thank god that was that election and not the 2016 election (laughs) he
0: might might not be here today
1: yeah um and then I had been getting ear infections every six weeks or so, and I just didn't know what it was. Um, And when we moved to Tucson, I went to an ENT finally because I had insurance at last. And I was diagnosed with something called a cholesteatoma, which is a benign cyst or tumor in your ear that's just skin cells going out of control. But I had had it maybe since I was 12. And so by the time they went in and did surgery to take it out, it had grown so big that it ate two of my ear bones and part of my skull jesus yeah i th- i woke up and the anesthesiologist was there and his first words to me were it was much bigger than we thought it was <laughs>
0: <laughs> thanks yeah welcome back to the world
1: i was like did you get it all and he was like yes <laughs>
0: they do not show it to you they're not like here it is
1: no i kind of wish they had
0: what is it it's just like a little fleshy thing
1: no okay so this is incredibly gross but it was so big that pieces of it were falling out of my ear when i would go horseback riding like you ride horses yeah i currently have a horse i'm thinking about selling her because it's a really i never intended to buy a horse i'm not quite that or at least i wasn't like that much of a horse girl um but i was i started riding because i realized i was an adult and i could (laughs) and then has this
0: been like a fantasy of yours since childhood
1: yeah but it wasn't it wasn't one that i was actively pursuing for a really long time
0: i feel like tucson's got to be like nice a nice place to ride when it's not like blazing hot
1: when it's not blazing hot it is it's a really nice place to ride but i was taking lessons at this ranch that suddenly shut down and so i had a relationship with this horse i'd been riding her for three years she's a really good horse She's a little quarter horse paint, very feisty. Um, what's her name? Lady. Lady. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so I bought her so she wouldn't go at auction and like be sold to become meat in Mexico or something like that.
0: Which, which happens?
1: Yeah. They don't like to talk about it, but it can. I mean, it, you just don't know what's going to happen to a horse if it gets sold at auction. It could be sold to a really nice person who's happy to get a good price. Or it could be sold to somebody who abuses horses. The horses get abandoned and like tied to a f- telephone pole, some and just like dehydrate to death.
0: Oh, God. There
1: was a horse at this ranch who they 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 were just like housing it for a little while, it was sort of a rescue. It had been in somebody's barn that got burned down by a cartel in like a revenge fire. And so they called it Bernie. <laughs> it had burns. It was a Mustang and it had burns all over its face. And when at first it was just like bucking and nobody could get on it. But after a while it became a really sweet horse. It's somebody so,
0: horse whisper it?
1: Yeah. Somebody horse whispered it. And can it, you and do I, that? Me? I, I can horse whisper my horse. You can. I sing to her. She likes
0: it. Do you just keep this horse in your yard? What do you do with this horse? No,
1: I board her. This you is do. Yeah. My my yard isn't big enough. I live in like downtown, not downtown, but like central Tucson, so okay. it's not zoned for that.
0: And then somebody just keeps her in a stable somewhere. Yep. They take care of her. Yes. You they pay take, a fee.
1: Yes. I pay rent.
0: And then how <laughs> often do you go see her?
1: Usually three times a week. Oh, that's a lot. It's it's a lot and it's 30. This is, this is my problem. I... I'm trying to get used to talking about the idea of selling her because it's been a huge anguishing decision. I actually just published an essay about it in the Tin House Open Bar because <laughs> I've been working through it. But I like—I love her. I love this horse and I love the fact that riding a horse is this physical intelligence that I don't... It's like we're, I'm working with livestock I, and horses are very intuitive. You have to be very in the moment to to ride a horse and do it well and be... Um, to be sensitive to what they're saying, your body language, what you're telling them. Um, and so I really, I love and I value that, but it's a, this combination of money and time. I'm I'm kind of trying to think about quitting my day job at some point because my husband actually has a good salary for once. Sorry, buddy. <laughs> it's our ninth wedding anniversary today. Oh, happy <laughs> right anniversary. <now>. Thanks. <laughs> but I can't really do that if I keep the horse And if I, and right now I just feel like having a job and writing and writing that often is really hard. And it's the riding, the riding of the horse takes so much effort and thought and care and a certain kind of creativity that I would like to be putting back into books.
0: I got it. Yeah. So can you ride it like a full gallop? Sure. You can do that. You could take off across the Western landscape. Yeah. I horse. mean,
1: it would be sort of a bad idea because you would fall in a gopher hole and run into a cactus, but <laughs> but
0: yeah, <laughs> if it's a smooth Western landscape. But it's not like equestrian. You're not jumping things.
1: I'm not. I've never jumped. Yeah, um, I'm not I into have, that. No, it's scary. This is this is the other thing. Horseback riding, even if you're not jumping, is just so dangerous. It's insane.
0: Yeah. Have you ever gotten thrown? I have not. not is not any of wood. this wood? Yeah, this is wood. The okay. desk is wood. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, you know what? You want to hear my terrifying horseback riding? Story? Absolutely. So I was in Cuba years ago and we went out to this like national park about a couple hours from Havana. Mm-hmm. we were staying at the, like the one hotel and, uh, oh wait, hang on a second. And, uh, they had horseback riding offered as like an activity at this hotel. Like, mm-hmm. you want to ride a horse? And we were like, yeah, cause you're near this national park. It's beautiful. Um, it's a stunning landscape. It mm-hmm. seemed seem like a nice thing to do. Like, oh, we'll go for a horseback ride through this landscape. So we sign up, and they're like, great, be outside, you know, in front of the hotel. The guy's going to meet you at like, you know, seven thirty, eight o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. Like, okay. So we get up, we walk outside, we're looking for the guy, and all of a sudden we see this dude... <laughs> He's like, just look like he was like a farmer, rancher. (laughs) And he had these like really almost sickly looking horses. Oh no. They were, they were sort of, you know, motley crew. Yeah. And he's like, okay. And we're like, wait, this is it. And it's just you. Like, you're just going to, and he's like, get on. And I have like, I've ridden the horse one time prior and it was like, you know, six or seven years before, Mm -hmm. but very poorly. I don't know a thing about horses. Sure. And this guy gets us on a horse, takes us out into the park, no instruction. I'm just like holding on to the reins. And then... Like walking or trotting or... Trotting. Okay. And then he, to mess with us, comes up behind our horses and starts whipping them. (gasps) And the horse takes off at a dead sprint.
1: That's so fucking dangerous.
0: I was terrified. I'm standing up in the stirrups, hanging on for dear life because uh-huh. like it was bouncing. You know, so I like I stood up because I felt like it was the better position.
1: I wish people could see my face right now. Yeah,
0: <laughs> I was running at a dead sprint in Cuba, like, and you know, something happens to me medically. I'm in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, it was very, you know, somehow I got the thing to stop. I just remember like the thing was. Yeah, I just remember being on a horse, moving fast, and feeling like this is a powerful animal. I don't have control. I just hope that this works out yeah somehow it did. and
1: horses are so easily frightened They're right. i was talking with a friend of mine once about how i felt like horses were kind of just really big dogs because they'll if like if you give them a bath they'll just roll around in the dirt right afterwards and they're kind of goofy and pushing you and like trying to test you but she she has been around horses her whole life and she said correctly actually they're prey animals so they're more like really big rabbits <laughs> that's
0: not if that's not a terrifying thought <laughs> yeah they, they're they prey animals yeah what preys on a horse uh
1: like a mountain lion
0: like, like a coyote
1: yeah some, something like that like the reason that horses have to be trained to accept something going on their back like a baby horse or like a like a one or two-year-old horse has to be conditioned to take accept riders you call it like breaking the horse sure, or the, yeah. like a green horse I think that's a familiar term to anyone who re- read like black beauty <laughs> um, because when something jumps on a horse's back in nature, it's trying to kill it. So it's a very unnatural thing that we're asking horses to do right? and they have to really be conditioned to, to do it. And then there's the fact that they have their, I think that they don't have binoculars, binocular vision. If you're looking forward, Anyway, they they will often just be paying attention out of one side because their eyes are on two, like either side of their head. And so if they're like going around in a circle, looking to the left, looking to the left, and then suddenly they notice something to the right. And it doesn't even have to be something that just popped into view. It can be like a hose that was sitting there all along, but they just noticed it right now. They'll spook. Because they're super dumb
0: (laughs) they only have like their brains the size of a walnut
1: they're so dumb they're like they're very smart in some ways they're incredibly intuitive and emotionally intuitive um but yeah there are certain ways that big old dummies
0: (laughs) that's cool i didn't know that about you yeah so when did you uh publish when did you finish your book and like how did how did your publishing career start
1: i so after grad school when i was living with my my in-laws i started i've finished a revision of my first book and I submitted it to agents and I got a couple of like near bites, but they both had, both of the people that I liked the most um, had the same criticism of the book so I stopped sending it out at that point and did another revision and then, I don't know, like six months after that, I landed my agent, who's great and I love, and was neither of those people Oh, I was going to say, was <laughs> yeah. it one of the two? No. Oh. <laughs> And, uh, although I, I, I also really like both of those people. If this is very inside my head baseball, <laughs>
0: who's your agent? <laughs> uh,
1: my agent is Emma Patterson of Brenton Hawkman, and she's a total delight and a real badass.
0: Okay. Yeah. She sells your books.
1: She sells my books.
0: So what happened when the first one sold? How did you find out?
1: I was in the middle. I knew there were two, actually two different editors who were going to talk to Emma that day, and I was in a conference call, like a video call for work, and just like looking at my phone like a crazy person. And I I don't think that the people I was video calling with knew that, but I was doing it. And then Emma called me to, you know, say that we had gotten an offer and we were going to go with it. And I was, I just. I saw her call come in and I just sprinted away from the video call without even (laughs) saying anything. Like I left it on and I just went into a different room and took the call and screamed. And then I call's
0: good. Call call means good news.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And and then I came back and they were like, what just happened? You
0: seem like you're in a good mood.
1: Yeah. I think I had came back with whiskey actually. Oh, you did. Yeah. But they were, they were, they were into it. My, my coworkers are great.
0: Okay. They know you. They do. They're happy for you. Yeah. So, and then, then you set out to write a second one. You you said earlier, you feel like this one went better. You wrote it faster. I guess you should feel like you're getting better with each book. Isn't that the idea?
1: Yeah. Although I will say that I was working on a different book in between these two books that I'm still working on. So not all the books are coming faster.
0: (laughs) What does it look like when you work? Are you an everyday person?
1: I try to be, I have, because I do so many things, I try to, and because of my, now I accept as type A brain. I do really well with a schedule and I feel like I become more creative if I have a set time of day that I am working. So I try to get up and write in the morning for at least an hour before work. And I only work three and a half days a week, so I can organize it so I don't work at all. So I just am writing on Fridays. But horseback riding gets really messes this up, <laughs> especially in the summer when I can only go in the mornings. And that if I try... I used to try to write in the afternoons after work, and I just can't do it. It bums me out so hard. Um, so I try to write every morning for at least an hour, and if it's going well, I'll just keep going. Um, and then on Sundays, I draw comics for my webcomic.
0: Really? And that's like using a different part of your brain, mm-hmm. still creative, mm-hmm. cleanses your palate somehow.
1: It really... That's a perfect way to put it.
0: It's... And does it ever give you ideas? Do you ever find yourself like f- figuring out like parts of your book that are giving you trouble while you're drawing or something?
1: Yeah, not usually because of not what I'm drawing. Like there's not a clear line between the topic of the comics and w- what I'm writing about usually, but that that headspace I think is is clarifying. When I'm really tired of narrative, I start drawing comics and like watching X-Files reruns and inking something for hours and hours and hours and then when I get tired of that and my hand cramps, <laughs> I'm ready to go back to writing. Do you
0: type your drafts like as a writer or do you write by hand or
1: I mostly type. I do full first drafts in a Word document with another Word document open next to it that I'd copy and paste all of the throwaway stuff that I can't quite bring myself to just delete. Um, and for some reason, my husband thinks that's hilarious.
0: So wait, but you're writing a draft in Microsoft Word. It's a first draft, but then mm-hmm. you're actively editing it as you go.
1: Yeah. Doesn't everyone do that?
0: Some, some people just go straight through
1: that blows my mind. I can't, I'm too interested in writing on the sentence level for that to work. I I can hear, I don't read my work out loud, but I feel like I can hear it as I go, what the rhythm is. I'm always going back a few sentences to make sure that the new sentence fits. And that's not to say that I don't edit the hell out of, you know, the next draft, but um, yeah, I definitely, I edit a lot as I go.
0: How many drafts do you think you do?
1: It really depends So for, I mean, with books, you always end up doing a million drafts, but for my first book, I did more drafts because it started as a short story. Then I did it as a novella and then I made it into a a novel. And then I revised that novel like two or three times and I really reorganized the pieces of it a lot, which I didn't do as much with this book. Um, And then, you know, then you work with an editor and well, an agent and an editor and then a copy editor. And I mean, at that point you're not really revising, but but with short stories, I can. I have one that I'm working on now that I've been working on for a year. Has probably been through twenty drafts, and I have one that I really like that I two drafts of that I think is maybe better than the one that I've been overworking for a year.
0: Yeah. Well, sometimes I feel like short stories can come out quick. Yeah. I mean, but then I guess I've also heard stories from people where they say they spent like seven years.
1: I think it just depends. It depends yeah. on the story. At least for me. Yeah. And with this book it's the same. I definitely did drafts. You know, I I so there was the first draft and then I did a second draft before I sent it to my agent. And then I did another one or two drafts with her. And then we showed it to somebody who thought it needed more work and so I that was like around the time of the 2016 election. I went back in and I added a bunch of stuff. My my tendency with first drafts is to underwrite and just to assume that, People will get stuff through implication, and then I need an editor, or an agent to come in and say,
0: "These are blind spots. These are blind
1: spots." Yeah, yeah. And you could really like, you can explore more here. You can put a scene here. You don't need to like force people to try to like use your book as a cryptic text.
0: Right. You're, you're being too elliptical.
1: Yeah, and that's good advice for me, and also usually a fun way to revise because by then I know the people pretty well, and so it's it's enjoyable to flesh things out
0: and. And so when you're working in an hour, uh, like an hour a day or whatever, mm-hmm. minimally, mm-hmm. how fast are you working? Like, are you a pretty fast writer? Totally depends.
1: Sometimes that entire hour will just be me writing one sentence and deleting it and then rewriting it and then deleting it and then sitting back and hating myself.
0: Do you get frustrated?
1: <laughs> fuck yeah. <laughs> Do you ever want
0: to quit? Are you ever like, why the fuck am I doing this? To no, myself?
1: I don't get that frustrated.
0: You don't get that frustrated. No. And you can, and you have a stick to it. Like yeah. you stick to it. Yeah, you see the project through. You're persistent.
1: I'm very persistent. Yeah, I it bums me out to quit stuff.
0: Yeah, I, I feel the same way. Yeah, I, I can't shake a project once I get my teeth into it.
1: I also think that that is the thing that people fuck themselves over with the most in writing. They get into a project. And then they start second guessing themselves and then they quit it and they start a new project and they just, this becomes a cycle where they, they convince themselves that they can't finish a book, but it's only because they didn't. And the, and I know that doesn't sound like real advice, but it is real advice. Just, you have to keep going and then you'll finish it and then you can figure out if it's good or like how you can make it better. But
0: you got to get it done. You got to get it done. Yeah. I've finished the book that I've been working on twice and neither one of them was right.
1: Now mm-hmm. I'm
0: working on a different version. That sucks. (laughs) That's that's just drafting and redrafting. It is. You know, that's the job.
1: That's, yeah, I'm working on, I actually kind of screwed myself over with the book that I'm working on right now because, so there was the book that I was working on before Invitation to a Bonfire that I'm still revising um, that just turned out to be like a way harder book than I thought it was going to be. And I was partway through a draft, a revision of that. And then I was going to a residency at Gentel in Wyoming last September, and I really wanted to do something new there because I had an idea for a new book. And I had never been to a residency before where I just had no plan, and it just sounded like something I wanted to try. And so I started writing a new book there, and I got like 100 pages in. And now- How long were you there for? A month. A month.
0: And you wrote 100 pages?
1: Yeah, about a good 20 of them are total trash.
0: But That's okay. Yeah. <laughs> 100 pages is good?
1: Yeah, I felt good about it. Wow, my stomach is grumbling.
0: <laughs> Sorry. Are you hungry? No. Oh, okay.
1: No. Um, it's just talkative. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but so then I, when I left there, I also had to do copy edits on an invitation to a bonfire there. And when I got back, I then I had to do uh, page proofs. And then it was Christmas, and then I had surgery, and then this I was is the ear thing. Yeah, the ear thing. Okay. Oh, oh, I had to have. Yeah, I had to have a second surgery on it. Oh, you Now did. I'll show you. Not right now because the I don't microphone. I not see won't. it. You- well, it's like it. <laughs> what's good about it? What I want to show people is how weird it doesn't look. <laughs> My ENT looked at it recently because he had he had to do this new surgery because it came back. The, the the tumor thing came back. He did this new surgery where he. Um, like opened my ear canal more and I didn't realize. So now if it comes back again, he can clean it out at an office visit instead of having to do surgery, which is much better. But it apparently often looks quite weird. And I didn't know that until after the surgery happened. And I had this huge wad of cotton in my ear that he pulled out like so Moist scarves out of a hell magician's <laughs> sleeve. Oh my god! So bad. I thought it was just like a little cotton ball that he was gonna like. But no, <laughs> he did ask me if I wanted to see that, and I was like, "In no universe, absolutely
0: not. <laughs> that I would never erase that image." So, wait, you brain. have like an ear canal that's larger than? Yeah,
1: yeah. And, but I guess it doesn't look as weird because it it of the way it's scarred. It looks. Well, let me see normal. your ear. Can I see yeah, it? Does yeah. it
0: look different? It looks it looks like there's a normal that ear, one, and
1: then there's this
0: one. Oh, that one's a little bigger. Let me see the other one. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. But like the like, you would have to really be looking to notice. Exactly. But apparently, sometimes it looks
1: weirder than that. <laughs>
0: What do you mean? Like in certain light?
1: No, no. I mean, not mine. I mean, sometimes people who have had this surgery oh. don't have scarring as quote unquote fortunate as mine,
0: uh, which f- the ENT. scarring.
1: Yeah. My ENT is always looking at my ears saying, like, this looks way better than you even have any right to. I'm like, what? Who are you?
0: <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. I think.
1: No, he's actually a really good doctor and I like him, but sometimes he says things that are just like, you, you need to think about your bedside. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Doctors are, they're not all created equal. Yeah. Um, well, and, and let's see. So working at Google, you might quit working on another book, celebrating the publication of this one, been married for nine years.
1: Pretty good. You've got a good life. Yeah. I'm, I'm really happy.
0: So anything, nothing terrible is like super terrible has happened.
1: Well, my father-in-law died and my brother-in-law has cancer. My younger sister was addicted to drugs and just had a surprise baby. (laughs)
0: Well, Okay, so there's always stuff. There's always stuff. (laughs) You know, it's funny. Trump is the president. Trump is the president, but I think about that. um, No,
1: I am really lucky, though.
0: Yeah, well, yeah, likewise. I feel like everybody's got stuff, though. Yes. Everybody's got stuff. It's easy to forget somehow. Mm -hmm. And uh, I guess some people have worse stuff than other people. But nobody gets through. Nobody rides for free.
1: Yeah. I I know this isn't a unique insight on my part, but I do think that social media makes it harder to remember that because it's hard to be vulnerable on social media and not, even I sometimes don't want to see it from people. I, I respect whatever anybody wants to say, wherever.
0: Something's where something like stomach turning about somebody pouring their heart out on social. Yeah. It well, cheapens just, it or something. It's,
1: it's that. And it's also to me that it's so vulnerable. Like what if it doesn't go well is always what I'm thinking. Like I can't, what post. if it
0: only gets two likes Yes.
1: <laughs> what, or no likes?
0: Yeah, I know it's but see. Okay. But the flip side of that, I think about this sometimes because people do, uh, you know, in certain circumstances decide to pour their heart out on social. Mm-hmm. They'll have some rant they need to go on mm-hmm. to get something off of their chest. And then, uh, there are people who have these insane social media presences, mhm where they have like a rabid fan base that hang on their every word, Mm -hmm. that fave and retweet everything they say, that is a powerful drug. Like think about pouring your heart out and having like 5,000 people be like, yes.
1: You're the best. I love it. Good haircut. I love
0: your haircut. You go. Like, I mean, that would be... I wonder what the effect that would have on me. If like, I had that kind of reciprocity on social media, I feel like...
1: I think it would do bad things to me. I feel like <laughs> I would be
0: on it constantly. Yeah. Just like going back to that well to get that dopamine hit. I'm
1: already on it
0: way too much. Um, which one? All of them or just... Uh,
1: Twitter and Instagram. I'm also on Facebook, but I don't use it as much. I don't use it in the same way. I don't get the like affirmation. But the thing is... Twitter can be so toxic and such bullshit, but I have also genuinely met so many friends there that I treasure, who I know in real life now. You know, I've stayed at their houses, Uh, so I have a hard time knowing like i kind of want to let go it's not all
0: bad is what it's you're not saying. all bad yeah
1: there, there are these amazing benefits that are there at the same time as all of the political fervor that makes like gives me an almost panic attack on a daily basis i read
0: i'm fairly convinced like speaking of twitter i read and and kind of uh along the lines of what we've been talking about i read a thread on twitter that basically said that social media is is breaking down like norms of decency in our society because and trust among people, because we're getting to see what people really think. Mm -hmm. A lot of what is said on social media is the kind of thing that back in the day you sort of kept to yourself. Right. And now it's all out there. And so the masks are dropped.
1: It's true. But the reason I brought up social media is because there's also the the quality. uh, It also has the quality of causing people to really manicure their masks a different kind of mask and a different kind of person i guess
0: that's that's, yeah some people use it that way they curate their existence they want to show you their best self Mm -hmm. they want to have like an alter ego
1: yeah and i do i feel the pressure to do that especially during book launch like i would really like to just retreat to my bat cave and work on my new book for a while but i have this like attention deficit disorder that i've given myself externally (laughs) i say
0: i say i'm gonna quit I'm only on Twitter, but I say I'm gonna like after Trump is gone, if there's been any kind of semblance of order restored, I'm gone. Yeah. Like I'm gonna just end it.
1: I'm gonna try to take an actual break after like after all of this publication stuff comes out. Yeah. Like it is is done. Just like, go
0: ride your horse. It'll be too hot. I guess you can do it in the morning.
1: I can do it in the morning
0: still hot (laughs) it's just too hot it's like 98 at like 7 in the morning
1: yeah but i just booked i I gave myself like a present for the end of this tour season so in september my husband and i are going to paris and then we're gonna go to the south of france and do a walking tour which makes me feel very pleasantly 19th century it's um a bunch of small towns that it ends like a half an hour by train away from nice so that that area
0: Oh, that's a beautiful area.
1: Yeah. I've never been there. I've been to France, but I've never been to the south of France.
0: Are you going to Cassis?
1: No, that was a place we were thinking about going. Oh, okay. But we, I I decided I was too neurotic to have to plan that whole part of the trip myself. I wanted somebody to plan it for me, which... um, is you know a privileged thing to do when i was 18 i was like i'm planning it all myself fate will be my guy yeah right (laughs) um and that's how my friend left her birth control pills in a different city in italy
0: (laughs) (laughs) i won't won't ask for details fate (laughs) intervenes
1: no it wasn't even anything it was just like she forgot them in the hotel and had to go train back and get them while i was alone in venice
0: (laughs) you got to get on a train to go back why don't you just get some new ones um, is it different in different countries?
1: Well, I yeah, I think she didn't have a prescription for them, so she couldn't get them oh, there. Okay. I mean, the prescription is, like, on the pills, you know? Right. Um, and it probably wouldn't have been the end of the world if she didn't take them, because we weren't, like, sleeping around in Venice. I was going to say, what but, were you guys up to? She, she had a long-term boyfriend then, so...
0: Uh-huh.
1: But I think she... It's just... it. It sucks when you have to, like, get back on the cycle. It takes two weeks for them to be active, and I think... And that was right before we were going away to college. By the college. way, I didn't expect
0: this conversation to touch upon <laughs> birth control, but I'm glad we're...
1: I'm always happy to talk about birth control. <laughs> I have had an IUD for like seven years and I am I have not had a period in that time and it's amazing.
0: You don't even have one when you I have an IUD. I don't have
1: one at all. Well, there's two different kinds of IUDs. You can okay. have... Well, there's more now, but there are two basic kinds. There's the kind I have, which is a different kind of estrogen or some... It's a different kind of hormones um, than you would get in the pill. So it's like a little lighter but still hormones and then there's a copper one that
0: it's made of copper it's
1: made of copper and that's all it is like they put a copper iud in to your uterus yeah. and then you don't have babies but that one that one appeals to people who are like moderately suspicious of modern medicine like not so suspicious that they won't let a doctor insert something past their cervix but suspicious enough that they don't like the hormones uh-huh. which also legitimately fuck with a lot of people sure not me i'm lucky Um, and then, but the copper ones make you have more period, like rougher. And I just was not interested. Yeah. Um, so the one I have, it makes everyone's period lighter. And for some people like me, it makes it go away completely. God. I'm a cyborg and I'm into
0: it. (laughs) (laughs) On that note. Yes. Um, it's been great to meet you. Yes, you too. (laughs) (laughs) This is the the best outre. Yeah. This is the... Closing uh, to an episode that I've, I've been searching for for the past seven years. Uh, it's, it's great to meet you. Congratulations on the publication of your novel. Thank you. And I wish you luck dealing with your horse. Thanks. I wish you luck writing your next book, finishing it, and uh, good luck on tour. Thank you. All right, guys. That's it. That's Adrienne Selt. Her novel is called Invitation to a Bonfire. It's available from Bloomsbury. She's on the internet at adrianselt.com. She's on social media. Her Twitter handle is at seltadri. That's at C-E-L-T-A-D-R-I. She's on Goodreads. She's got a Tumblr. Adrienne Selt, invitation to a bonfire. Go get your copy immediately. Thanks to Kill Rockstars and the band Stereo Total for the theme song music. Thanks to Cigarette Royalty for the interstitial music. If you would like to write to me, if you have something you need to say to me, My email address is letters at otherppl.com Tell me what you think of the show Tell me a story Tell me about your life Tell me about your suffering If you want to get the Other People app, that's free Don't forget all episodes of this show are free More than 500 and counting If you want to support the program You can do so at patreon.com Slash otherpplpod So yeah, I'm uh I'm on the east coast As we speak Doing some fairly interesting stuff that I don't feel at liberty to talk about. It's always weird with work stuff. You don't want to like divulge details. Just trying to play it safe, be respectful. But it's cool. It's good. Got a consulting gig. I'm a creative consultant. I'm just doing some consulting. This program has its own Twitter feed at Other The website is otherppl.com. You can listen to shows there. All of the shows are there for free. You can listen via the Other People app. That's probably the easiest way. You can listen via Stitcher. There's a million ways to listen. You guys know how to listen to podcasts, right? You figure that out in 2018? So, hope you're having a good summer. I hope you're hanging in there. It sure is crazy right now. I feel like things are just intensifying. Like insanity over chaos, over lunacy, over misery, over. And it's just like a. The, the true narrative of what's happening in this country right now is uh, upsetting in the extreme. Don't forget to support Races, the nonprofit organization that's helping those little babies get back to their parents. What could be less political than wanting kids to be with their parents? I don't care where they're from or who they are. It's fucked up that we're doing this. Show your support. Do something. Don't just sit there. Okay? Okay. All right. I'll talk to you next week.